other people would be like, that's kind of crazy, but actually I've seen it work for a number of people, is that early on we hired very senior people for some roles and it didn't work out because they were used to working at bigger companies where you have um, a team around you, an infrastructure, you know. And so hiring those people as our very first team members where they had to do everything by themselves, it didn't work out. They weren't as well suited to that. And so actually some of our very best, actually a number of our very best early um, team members, I had actually just hired off of Craigslist. Um, And so... A number of people joined from Craigslist or um, England doesn't really have Craigslist. They have something called Gumtree, which is similar. So England, we hire people from Gumtree. In America, it was from Craigslist. And some of these people, a number of them, this was maybe their first job out of college. And what that meant is that they they were kind of learning the job and what they needed to do as they went along because so were we. We didn't really know what we needed them to do. Um, and so hiring these young, just hungry um, people, um, that worked a lot better for us. They um, they were very hungry. They, these people were a, a lot coming in all together on the weekend. Actually, a number of us, we, we all lived together. Um, so one of the bits was like, hey, we can't pay you a massive salary, but if you want, then we have this house and you can stay in the house. So I stay, I was staying in the house for a bit, kind of my my room was like this. I think I, I was staying in like the uh, the washing room, like whatever it's called in America, like where the washing machine and the dryer were. I would like sleep on the floor in there. And then we had a, a bunch of other people there as well, um, moving from like other states, moving from England. And this was definitely not a luxury house. This was in a um, very, very rough neighborhood. And um, so the idea worked for a bit, but then um, kind of backfired at one point where we, we, we had a number of people there. And then one of our employees, team members, he um, got robbed at gunpoint oh um, actually twice in the space of a week. <laughs> And so at that point, we were like, okay, probably this idea is not working out too well. Um, should probably shut down this bungle house. Oh, Lord. And, and Jack, um, just... But- and Jack, sorry, just for context here, because, um, you know, not everyone would have tuned into the first part of, sure. of the session, but, you know, Vungle is a mobile ad company. So, you know, you look at, uh, games and, uh, the ads that pop up in between, a uh, long time ago, that wasn't necessarily the norm. And Jack and, and Zane really, you know, uh, got, got, I, I get, I guess got into the business at the right time and figured it out. Yeah. Um, but the people, and this is really, um, you know, that really, uh, I'm not surprised, frankly, uh, because I know you and Zane, but, you know, it's mind-boggling. So you went to Craigslist to look for uh, salespeople, and these were better salespeople than those that were hired out of um, the bigger companies like Microsoft or whatever. Is, is that what you're saying, Jack? Um, kind of. Uh, it wasn't necessarily that these people are better salespeople. It was that basically um, we – and we weren't hiring from Microsoft, but we had hired from – there was other big – mobile advertising companies um so it could have been google for example and then at some point early on we were hiring these people like head of europe so to imagine it could have been like all right we just hired the head of europe for google advertising and so we were like oh wow this is such a big hire we hired from one of our competitors like one of their senior people but then they join our company 
and we don't know what the hell we're doing and we're just like hey all right just figure out your job by yourself and then they struggled because they were just basically like a lone ranger now where they would have probably been very successful at google or somewhere where they have a team around them and it's very structured like this is your day this is what you do but then joining a startup where the role is getting figured out as you go along, then they really struggled. And for us, it was much more successful just hiring people off Craigslist that had never had a job before and because they could then figure it out as they went along uh, as we did. Yeah, yeah. Oh, well, uh, breaking all the rules. What can I say? Uh, so for those of you tuning in, you know, this is a conversation with Jack Smith uh, that broke all the rules that we've been sold in startup. Um, number one, never go into business with your friends. He did exactly that. Uh, never... What what else did I pick up there? Um, never yeah, hire from Christmas. What, yeah. what else? Yeah I, can't, yeah, I can't remember exactly the things that you had on your slide deck, but a lot of what we were told as the rules didn't apply to us, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so I remember early on, we came up with this idea for mobile advertising, and we had we had no idea about the industry, to be honest. So like, um, and so. The, this incubator we went to called Angelpad, it was actually started by some early kind of Googlers. And so at one point, we just came up with this new idea. And then so I just had a meeting with the guy running the incubator. And basically, it was just drawing on the whiteboard like, hey, I spent the past week researching. And this is how I think mobile advertising works. I think that you have like place of publishers that want to show advertise, advertisements because they want to make money. And I think you have advertisers that want to spend money because they want to get users. So I basically just drew this crude diagram on a whiteboard. The other guy basically just stood up and like slammed on the table and he's like, you guys have no clue about mobile advertising. You just went on Google and searched about mobile advertising and now think you're experts. Google's been doing this for like 10 years. There's people at Google with like 10 years experience in this and you think you can take them on just because you looked it up on Google like seven days ago. And he's like, you will never get a single dollar of funding. And because he really wants us to do this other business idea. And so we kind of make fun of him for that now. But what that essentially that was true. We didn't have a clue what mobile advertising means or we were not industry experts. But that meant that we were able to approach it with a fresh pair of eyes Mm. and just really, really dumb down the problem to its most basic level. Um, Early on, I met another company that was in the mobile advertising space and I, I said, our idea and they were like, oh, cool. Um, so are you building this using like NRAID and is it going to support like XML, hyperfeeds, whatever bullshit? And then we were just sitting there like totally like blank diet. And I'm like, I have no idea what you're talking about because we were not deep in the technology of how mobile advertising works. But that meant that we approached it with a very primitive um viewpoint which has benefits because that means you can question the rules so it's like well why is the norm that it's done this way Mm. like everyone else would be like oh this is just this is the industry standard it's the way it's done or whatever but us we would be like well that's great that it's done like that but why why does it have to be like that 
Yeah, and so, and Jack, that actually, you know, is a very um, you're really dropping some gems here. And I see some founders in the room, and I, I know some of them uh, going through a, a couple of interesting journeys here of trying to disrupt um, marketplaces where there are really, you know, the you know the the big incumbents, right, and and competitors that are constantly. Uh, it feels like today you're innovating, and then tomorrow someone else has done a, something similar. Um, how did you deal with the? the competition around you as things were, I, I know even in your space, there was a particular company that w- that did exactly the same thing. How did you deal with competition? Um, just by not necessarily making decisions based on what everyone else does or because they're industry standard. So we launched the company and one of the things that was an industry standard that all of our other competitors did was how they priced the advertising. So they basically just use the same pricing model that Google AdWords and all of these companies have, have used for many decades, which is um, because on they do is the TV advertising, radio, and it's called CPM, cost per mil, so cost per thousand people. And the idea is that everyone else just charged that, hey, um, every thousand people that watch one of your videos, um, that is going to cost 10 cents let's say, because that's how uh, Google AdWords did it. They did cost per mil, like every thousand people that see your Google AdWords ad, um, we're going to charge you 10 cents or whatever. And then we were just thinking like, all right, this is the industry standard, but is that actually aligned with what our advertisers want? Our advertisers just want people to download their app or game and play their game. They don't care how many people see a video about their game. The video is the means to an end. They, they just care about who installs it. And so basically we took a risk because it could have not worked, but we took a risk and it, it did work out really well. And we were, I think, the first that we charged on a cost per install basis for the mobile video advertising we were doing. So we were basically just like, hey, look, you don't need to worry about how many people watch the video. Just every time someone who watches one of the videos installs your Apple game, um, pay us a dollar. And um, that aligned much more with the advertisers because they were able to understand that a lot better. Like, what does a thousand people watching a video even mean? Like, they, that is, it's very hard to equate what does that mean for me. Um, and so this, they were able to understand it a lot better and it ended up actually getting us more customers and making us more money by um, challenging that convention. Wow, Jack, I uh, love, love that angle. And um, who, who knew uh, cost for install is uh, you and Zane behind it all. Uh, Camilla, I see you here. Uh, Camilla is... Actually, based now, I think in New York, is is that right? Coming all the way from Vienna and one of my good friends as well, who's been a powerhouse uh, investor, Camilla, and please introduce yourself and and uh, feel free to ask Jack a question. Hi. Um, yeah, I would love to. Um, short overview. I uh, started my first company right out of university. It was in the food tech business um, after that. I uh, grew uh, the largest female founders network uh, across Europe called Female Founders Global. Um, still there as a venture partner. And um, then I went, I had a corporate stint because I wanted to see the other angle, having never worked um, at a large corporation. I went to a company called Bertelsmann, 
and there I invested, invested in startup um, via TV advertisement. So I know what a CPM is and I know um, that it's a currency that we uh, take uh, very seriously. And I helped uh, um, later stage startups scale across uh, Europe uh, with TV advertisement um, via media for revenue share deals. And yeah, now I'm uh, on a one-year sabbatical and I moved to New York and I'm studying at Columbia right now and have a, a couple of other um, projects going on. My question would be about leadership because um, I'm involved in two um, pan-European projects right now and uh, we want to kind of have a look in um, what the future of um, Europe should look like and the future leaders that Europe um, are shaping. And so you talked a lot about um, not following rules or uh, actually when rules uh, were given, uh, you found them not to be helpful and you did things differently. And um, I mean, you've been very successful um, because you always thought outside the box. So what would be your biggest learning uh, since starting your first company at a very young age in terms of leadership? What um, is leadership to you? Uh, what do you feel like uh, maybe leadership roles were presented to you that didn't align with your kind of um, a vision um, towards being a leader for your employees and uh, your partners? In regards to your question, I think uh, one bit that I would just take away is that I kind of just um, would be uh, quite terrible as a leader in many of the ways that um, being a leader is kind of stereotyped and um, that's okay. Um, so on the podcast bit, I was talking that not everyone should be an entrepreneur. Um, it's glamorized and kind of made a celebrity out of entrepreneurs nowadays. You know, you have movies made about them, books written about them, and they are marrying like supermodels like um, Evan from Snapchat, married to a supermodel and stuff. So they're kind of glamorized a lot. Um, but it's not the right thing for many people. You, you uh, For me, I just was drawn to being an entrepreneur and starting businesses because that was my skill sets and passions and then when it comes to being like a leader so in a typical sense like let's say leading amazon or you know managing thousands of employees or something um i would be really terrible at that i am not very good at being a manager um my social skills and um, interactions with other people are sometimes weird or just I am not the best at I'm maybe better sometimes one-on-one -on -one, but sometimes my social skills are not ideal and so I just really sucked as being a manager um I was micromanaging people too much didn't maybe trust people to run with ideas and so for me I was much better at getting businesses and projects off the ground getting them started or working with like very small teams but I kind of suck at being a leader of, of bigger teams but that's okay because other people are great at that and so I think that would be a big learning for me is that even though um, Jeff Bezos and people are glamorized that they've built a massive company to that scale um, maybe I could learn how to do that if I had like really great coaches and stuff surrounded by me 
but it's not the most appealing for me for me and just looking at my natural skills and abilities I would be really bad at it I uh, love your honesty um, also love obviously um, that you uh, analyzed yourself early on and uh, and saw that that was not your strongest skill I will have a follow-up question uh, which is I mean, at the at the end of the day, when you start and you've started a couple of companies and you were successful, uh, so there has to be some skill to lead and show the way. And now I'm talking about being in a room with investors who you want to um, have money from with probably um, an idea, maybe a prototype, maybe something in between. Um, but not real, really something to show for where this would be, you know, like a solid 10x investment case. And so there has to be something that you have. Now hold that thought. Finding a service solution that helps you keep customers happy can feel impossible. Like trying to remember the name of that guy you literally just met at a networking event. HubSpot's all-new service hub can help with their service solution part at least. It brings service and success together on one powerful platform with an AI-powered help desk and chatbot to help you handle your frontline tickets so you can scale support and drive retention and revenue. We love the sound of those things. Visit hubspot.com service to learn more. Maybe a vision, maybe it's, a, yeah. maybe it's a, something that is mesmerizing to people in order to move things forward because at the end of the day sure. some might say starting the idea and and you know getting people on board in the in the very early beginnings is the most difficult part of them of all yeah absolutely um so and, and just to finish up on your last question i would say that it's, it's cool that we are maybe getting more role models to glamorize operators so like Sheryl sandberg is not a founder and um, mm -hmm. uh, she's celebrated for being a cool leader at Facebook. So that is pretty good so that people have role models who are not all founders because, you know, Cheryl hasn't been a founder really to start a successful company. Um, but we celebrate her for that she is being a chief operating officer at a really, you know, hundreds of thousand employee massive company. So I think that is great to have these differentiated role models. Um, otherwise, people just think that they have to be a certain way but there are kind of um, successful paths for different skill sets so if you're an operator like Cheryl that's awesome or if you're an entrepreneur like Mark or someone else then that's awesome as well but they are very different skills um, so yeah to pick up on um, your second question then um, what I observed going through the incubator and stuff is that many entrepreneurs they just felt um that they're putting investors on a pedestal too much maybe like paying them too much respect in some ways so one um, memory that really um sticks with me is that we were at this incubator obviously and then um there were we a lot of the teams were engineers and you know they're always coming in in their startup t-shirts and whatever and then one day one of them came in and he's in like a full-on like three-piece suit And we're saying to him, like, dude, what are you doing? Like, where are you going? A funeral or something? And then he's like, oh, that he was going to meet an investor. And, and we were just all laughing at him. But he's like, well, you'll see, like, 
who's on a, an investor want to gonna give money to? Like someone like me who's actually dressed respectfully and looking legit, or you guys in um, your startup t-shirts or, or whatever. Um, but I think what he maybe didn't get at that time is that connecting with an investor is not just, it's not a business pitch. It's not a business proposal um, where you're going in or, or what people think it is, is that you go in with your suit and you just do a PowerPoint pitch and you're like, oh yeah, here's my numbers. Um, do you want to give me money? Basically. Um, that is not a way to get somebody excited about what you're doing or build a connection with them. If you're somebody who normally wears startup hacker outfits, um, like that's the you know joke story from um, which, which is true story, but from the social network movie that Mark Zuckerberg went to meet Sequoia in his pajamas. Um, yeah. Because if you're going and doing that, that's who you are. Like they would have just seen that this guy is just some crazy young engineer and probably he's more likely to build a billion dollar company than another engineer who dresses up in a three-piece suit to come and meet them, you know? And so for us, it was about not just going in and doing, hey, here's our pitch deck. Actually, the best investor meetings for me, we never get the pitch deck out. Because if you imagine, if you're doing a pitch deck meeting, you're kind of sitting there and you and the investor are looking at a screen. You're looking at your computer or a projector or whatever. And so you're, you're, looking, you're not looking at each other. You're looking at a screen, just going for a boring pitch. They're having like more than probably like six or seven of these pitches a day in their boardroom well, now on Zoom, you everyone knows how tiring Zoom is, right? Like, you get Zoom fatigue. It's freaking boring. They're going to get to the end of the day. They won't even remember half the pitches, probably more than half the pitches they had that day, you know? Because they're right. all the same. They're boring. You're falling asleep. So the way you build connection is having conversations. So if I'm going to meet an investor early on, they would get excited not by me showing them, hey, my formal pitch deck where I'm coming in a suit to pitch them. People also have an aversion to being pitched. You know, if someone turns up on your doorstep in a three-piece suit, you're going to be like, uh, what, do you, what, what do you want? Why, why are you knocking <laughs> on my door? And like, what are you trying to sell me? And you're going to put your guard up straight away. If how we got our first investor is I just pinged the guy on LinkedIn and I was like, hey, I've seen that you built a business in our space and sold it and it looked really awesome. I'm sure you've got loads of advice and I'd love to just get your advice and show you what we're working on and see what you think of it. We met up with him and we were just showing him videos and stuff that we, we had built and we built a mutual bond and connection where he was just getting excited and we were excited because it's like, hey, this is really awesome. I can see how other friends of mine who have mobile games, they, they would want to use this as well. And then he, because he got excited, then he's like, hey, um, are you guys raising money? Like, I'd be interested to invest in this, you know? It's another cliche. People say, like, hey, if you ask for money, you'll get advice. If you ask for advice, then you'll get money, you know? If we had just turned up to that meeting in a suit and just been like, hey, as you know, the mobile advertising market is very big. I want to show you our pitch deck on this opportunity, it sounds like we're trying to sell him a timeshare opportunity. I mean, instead, we were just, you know, kind of geeking out a bit, like, hey, you're in this space, we're in this space, 
want to show you our idea and see what you think of it. And um, so that has what's been very successful for us, where maybe early on, as you said, you don't have the numbers. So how else do you get investor interest before you get the numbers? It's building a personal connection and getting them actually excited about your kind of vision and what you're working on. Yeah, so to sum up, it's about human connection and you get that um, through being authentic. And I will make a joke now, that's possibly also (laughs) why you chose the profile picture um, that you chose. (laughs) Yeah, it just resonated (laughs) with me early on. I mean, I guess another example of this kind of thinking is they have um, that the um, founder of SoftBank got, what was it? I think he got like $100 billion dollars for the first vision fund from um, yes. the Saudi government or something, just in a 45-minute um, pitch or something. You know, he's not going to be turning up there with a pitch deck and trying to pitch the guy. He was just going there and having a conversation and selling his vision, and the people were really inspired. I mean, I sure definitely get it in, like, banking, or if I'm, if someone's trying to sell you some really – you know, trying to show that this is a very safe investment. I want you to buy these bonds. I want you to buy a hundred million dollars worth of gold. Then, of course, you're going to be like wanting them to seem professional. And if they turn up in a T-shirt with a wacky picture on it, you're going to be like, who the hell is this guy? That's safe stuff. But for startups, it's all about vision where, hey, this these people, they don't have anything. It's just too exactly. So it's about started. Yeah, it's about the team and do I believe in what they're saying and are these guys actually motivated to work on it? Because if I invest in them and then they get bored of it a year later, then then my money is going down the drain. So I need to be sure that these guys are passionate about what they're working on and that it's a big market and that I kind of believe in their potential. Right. Thanks, Camilla. Uh, great questions as always and, and so lovely to see you and have you uh, somewhat close by. Hopefully, uh, post-pandemic times, we, we can get back together. Uh, Max, yeah. over to you. Yeah, so this is more of a, a comment, Jack. I really, really enjoyed the first half. Um, and what really resonated with me was something that you just recently said when you were going in into that meeting and you said you, you Googled, you know, advertising you got into the meeting and um, and just the idea of being on the outside and bringing fresh ideas. Cause I, you know, sometimes we're so close to things, it's hard to think outside the box. So it was the saying, you know, you can't see the label from inside the bottle. And I think it really takes some outside ideas or, or influence to really come up with something really innovative and really disruptive. So, um, I really enjoyed that and really, really thought that, that part of your story was inspiring. Uh, Jack, I, I, I really enjoyed it. I, I missed the earlier part, but I really enjoyed what you were talking about. I just want to make sure we're on the same page. When you talk about conversation with the VC, right, you make it look like a conversation. Uh, are you in, inherently implying that the, 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 the power balance has to be, be equal, Rather than you, you looking needy and then, hey, this is this is what we're doing. Give us some money. When you do that conversation, uh, the balance happens automatically because it's a sure. change. Yeah, definitely. So, um, kind of one other example that I'd have is um, we went to this other um, VC's office, and actually, um, it was kind of a conveyor belt of people going through pitching, I guess. And um, it just so happened, actually. So, basically, it was a um, kind of Chinese um, venture capital firm where I, I think a lot of the team actually were not, um, maybe didn't speak English, um, but it kind of highlighted 
um, what how I think some people, for, especially for the first time, approach pitching. So basically, they had left the door open. So we actually heard the, the company that was pitching before us. And basically, the person just, the startup guy went on stage and pitched, and then he did his pitch. And then so at the end, he just stopped. And then there was just kind of this awkward silence. And then he's just like, okay, um, so do you guys want to invest? Like, what happens next? You know, and I think um, that is how lots of people approach the meetings that like, hey, this VC firm has like a billion dollars under management and I just am doing everything I can, but I really need money. So they've got something really valuable and I really need it. And they're not really viewing what they themselves as the startup person are bringing to the table. They're just viewing that like, hey, this guy has the golden beans and I need to go and pitch the, or him or her and I need to get the money from them. So they just go in and they basically treat it like a performance. They're, they're just like going up there doing a song and dance and then they finish their performance and they take a bow and they're like, okay, so do you want to give me money? Um, but that kind of gives you off a bit of an impression that you're just kind of desperate, you know. That kind of gives the impression that you would take money you're just so desperate for money that you would just take money from anyone who offers it to you and you're just desperate for money. Um, instead, what is much more effective, in my opinion, is, as you said, treating it that the power dynamic is equal. Like, yes, you guys are early on doing a startup, but you're going to meet an investor and you have something, or hopefully have something that they want. Their job is to find interesting small companies to invest in. So they want to invest in interesting companies and find interesting companies. And you want money and they have money. So you both have something that each party wants. So instead of going in doing performance and then being like, hey, do you want to invest? When I haven't asked them a single question about qualifying them, about if I want this person as an even investor, I don't even know anything about them because I've just been pitching the whole time. Instead, what is much more powerful is to go in and have a conversation. And so we would be sharing what we are doing, but then I would also be saying to them, hey, um, we're looking, the, the main challenges we're having is maybe um, connections in the mobile advertising industry. Um, what connections do you have in mobile advertising or experience? Uh, or we would be asking like, hey, the companies that you invest in, um, how do you typically help them? And basically, we were then getting them to pitch us. And what we're showing is we're showing that, hey, look, even if you want to give us money, that doesn't mean we're going to automatically just take it. We're not here on the street begging for money where anyone that throws money at us, we're just going to gobble it up. We're looking for people that are also going to be helpful to us. And we, to, you can say if you want to invest. We can say if we want to let you invest. And that is a much more equal conversation. Thanks, Jack. And uh, really love that. I mean, you know, a lot of times um, I, I, I say this a lot uh, Investors are in business because of entrepreneurs to power your ideas and, you know, we're uh, to, to recognize that um, it is about enablement and not really a power play, which it seems to be a lot of times uh, is what we have to all remember. But thanks for that. I think as much as, um, you know, I think the glamorization of 
raising is is something that uh, we see so much today. It's equally important to think about, you know, why am I doing this? And uh, getting an investor, getting a board member in, um, it's a partnership. And uh, bad boards have done bad things, as we've seen in many ways. Um, so just keep that in mind. But um, Jack, final last words for everyone here today. Um, what's your sage advice from everything that you've been through, the biggest, biggest takeaway that you want to make sure everyone remembers today? Uh, maybe just that if you think you are really set to be an entrepreneur, you, you don't really need anyone to validate you in that. And um, I felt, you know, that I wasn't being taken seriously because uh, I, I was just 15 when I was starting my business. And so that's what was really driving me that like, hey, people are not taking me seriously. Um, and probably other people have that chip on their shoulder as well, you know, like, oh, um, maybe they're, you're a minority or, or um, you have some bit that you feel maybe it's not an equal playing field. Um, that actually can be a driver, you know, and make it that you then can make yourself more hungry than the other person who maybe they have a rich parent or something and so can give them a million dollars to seed fund their company and um, often if you're having to work harder to get those first steps then maybe you're going to be more motivated and put in more work to um, get the, the, the end outcome you know because if someone's already been given that helping start in in life in in whatever way maybe privilege or, or money or, or something then they're maybe not going to have the same level of motivation as you because what is really driving them they've already been given that head start and so I guess it would just be that don't feel too set back and discouraged that you don't have the same resources as everybody else and so it's really you, you feel that you can't make as much progress I feel that just if you can make up for it in the hunger that you demonstrate very well said thank you so much Jack for all those gems as uh, always you know the replay will be on my channel um, tinyurl.com slash global uh, hit subscribe and stay tuned uh, for another amazing guest next week and thanks so much for tuning in this week you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and follow our socials at global to get the latest news on now hold that thought Talking to Loud, hosted by Chris Savage, is brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, the audio destination for business professionals. On this podcast, Chris Savage, Wistia CEO and loudest talker, takes you inside the minds of entrepreneurs as they share the hilarious, informative, and most challenging aspects of building more human brands. Everything we love here at Billion Dollar Moves. Now, an episode I loved recently was the one with guest Joe LeMay jiu-jitsu-loving entrepreneur and co-founder of Rocket Boat. He talks about how an airplane epiphany took him on a wild ride that started with a Shark Tank flop but ended with a $50 million exit. You know that's our jam. Listen to it, Talking Too Loud, wherever you get your podcasts. The Show. I'm Sarah Chen and you've been listening to Billion Dollar Moves.